you have your Bible, go with me to Nehemiah chapter 4, as we make our way through the book of Nehemiah. We are still on schedule to finish Nehemiah as planned, probably around uh, 12, 13 weeks total. We are four or five weeks in now. don't know where Nehemiah is, it is right after Ezra, right before Esther, towards the, probably the first third of your Bible, and if you're on a device, it's a couple clicks, and I can't help you there, you're on your own. I almost want to change the words to that last song we sang, and need you every hour, I need you to like every second, I need you, but I guess maybe it wouldn't rhyme or flow musically as well, so in my mind I'm singing hour, in, or in my, my words I'm singing hour, in my mind I'm thinking second, I'm just translating it as I sing it, and God knows our hearts. If you think I'm skipping over chapter 3, I treated chapter 3 last week. Go, you'll have to re-listen to go catch it. It's kind of like going into a short town, like a small town with one stoplight. We just stopped for a few seconds and then moved on. That does, I'm not trying to say it's unimportant, just for the record. <laughs> I just don't have the time to stop and look underneath every single rock and try to cover as many rocks as we can. All right, we should get going. Uh, we have lots of notes to cover this week. Uh, as always, nothing changes there, but... Nehemiah chapter 4. All right, let's do a quick review, catch us up. Very, very briefly here, I'm going to talk quick. Please listen quick. In this book of Nehemiah, we've learned so far that we're all called to be reformers. We're all called to bring about reformation, to bring about something. We're to see what is God's vision for the way things are to be. And you see that, and, and you see where things are not as God's vision intends for them to be. And then we, as God's people, those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ, are to bring that about. We are responsible as, as uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? But basically, uh, we rule on behalf of God underneath His kingship in His kingdom, just as it was intended in the garden, that we as image bearers of God, now being made into the image of Jesus, are to rule and reign for Christ, bringing about God's kingdom as we go forth, as Christ abides in us, as we go forth in this world. What we talked about, to be a reformer, you must have the following. You must have a deep conviction about the way things should be. So if you don't know what God's vision is and what God's vision is for the way things should be, then how are you to bring about reformation? I mean... At best, you might be bringing about the reformation that you have envisioned in your mind, which may not be God's intended vision for said area or for unsaid area. Maybe your marriage, your family, your workplace, your neighborhood, wherever it is. But we must have a deep conviction about the way things should be. And then secondly, again, talking about like ingredients for a reformation. First of all, deep conviction. Second of all, heartbreak when things are not as they should be. So when you see things that are not as God intends for them to be, if you're not heartbroken over that, then there will be no reformation. There must be an effectual side to this reformation as well. And then thirdly, a call to do something about it. There's a sense to do something about it. There are all kinds of brokenness in our world, and we're not all called to fix everything. It's just impossible. We can't do that. But there are things in our lives that we don't, like we have a sense of calling already. It's called God's Word, and He's told us to go fix it. So when God reveals something in our lives that is broken, like, you know, I'm, I'm thinking extreme here, but say, say you're, you know, in some sort of, you know, lustful relationship or something like that, like, you don't need a sense of a calling to stop that. Like, you stop it. Like, I mean, repent and grace, all that, but there's not a, all right, well, I'm just waiting on God to tell me to stop sinning, okay? So I want to make sure as we think about a sense of a calling to do something about it, like, the fact that God revealed it to you, I would be willing to say that that is a sense of calling to do something about it. But when we look at the world at large, sometimes we're not able 
to do everything, I know, surprising, but sometimes we have to let God and let other things or pray about it and so on and so forth. So a sense and a call to do something about it. Okay, next, so we talked about what, it, like a reformer, you must have the following, these three things. Next, we talk about reformation gets done by people not leaning on a shovel, but working hard with prayer as the background music. Like Rusty talked about, leaning on a shovel and praying that the ditch would appear. Um, it doesn't work that way. But prayer is the background music in, to which we work, communing with God as we bring about His kingdom. And then lastly, we, we're all called to lead in this reformation. We're all called to lead in some capacity. It's not just men who are called to lead. It's not just pastors who are called to lead. We're all called to lead in some capacity in bringing about reformation. Now, I have to admit, it's all a pretty daunting task. I mean, as, as I think about this, I think about building God's kingdom, this is a tough thing. This is not easy. I mean, I think that's why Jesus said we have to carry our cross, right? This, this is a part of what it means to carry our cross. So I have the question then, if it's tough, and indeed it is, how do we persevere in the kingdom building that God has called us to? How do we persevere so when I'm thinking about this, guys, as we go throughout this, let this be kind of a foundational thought. I'm thinking about perseverance in kind of two ways. I'm thinking of perseverance in the actual reforming, like you are bringing about reformation in a particular area of your life, and you have to persevere through that. But I'm also thinking about perseverance in the sense of the broader scope of life, and that is persevering to the end, as in persevering to heaven. So there's, there's a there's, that's the bigger picture. Now, how do we persevere to heaven? It's by persevering in the reforming throughout the whole process. It's those little small times and the small situations that build and build and build towards persevering to the end. And when I mean end, I mean the return of Jesus, of course. Now, I think the answer to this question actually lies right within the, right within the question. And that is, how do we persevere in the kingdom building that God has called us to? And I think largely, the answer to that question is this. You have to actually kingdom build. You have to actually build His kingdom. And I think the other things then fall in place. It's when we begin to build our kingdom which I know is an ongoing theme that we've been talking about a lot lately as a church, but it's when we build our kingdom that I think the perseverance tends to wane, tends to lack, tends to run dry. The reality is, is God is not going to give you strength to build your own kingdom. That would make Him a dumb king. But He is going to give you enough strength, grace, all the supplies necessary to build his kingdom. So I think the answer to the question lies right in the question. We must live for something bigger than ourselves if we're going to persevere through this life. And the kingdom, God's kingdom, is something much bigger than ourselves. It's something much bigger than your family. It's something much bigger than this church. And time and time again in this book, and particularly in these two passages, Today, in chapter 4, you will see Nehemiah brings the people back to living for something bigger than themselves. They are in exile, and he will bring them back to living for something grander and bigger than themselves. The people were part of building something much larger than any one or any even small group of people could have ever done. They were part of building something that required great provision from God. It's not something... I mean, just down to what we've already talked about, the fact that Artaxerxes, the king of Persia, had to okay this. And then he didn't just okay it, he made provision for it. Now, we talked just a few moments ago about a dumb king, about giving provision to build your own kingdom. That wouldn't be a very smart king, right? I'm going to help supply you so that maybe one day you can overtake me. That's retarded. But instead, what happens is God's clearly sovereign over Nehemiah, God then makes the provision through Artaxerxes for the building of his own kingdom. But you see great provision from God. You see that they were a part of something that God had covenanted with his people concerning. 
He's going to talk about something bigger than themselves. The people of God here are a part of God's covenant. And what God had planned, what God had had intended, of what God had built, of uh, this that God had promised. Okay, God had promised the building of his people. And so as Nehemiah and his pe- and these people are building this, they're a part of God's big picture, of God's big plan. Now, as we think about this, it's easy for us to get caught in the mindset that the only drama on Broadway is the drama that is our life. Maybe our family's life as well. What happens then is everything begins to circle and orbit around us or our families. I think it's real easy for us to do that. The rest of the kingdom then gets neglected. People don't get cared for. Walls go untouched and still lay in ruins. What happens then, church, is we end up teaching our families and teaching ourselves that ultimately God revolves around us. So then what happens, though, is life gets tough as you seek to build your kingdom. Life gets tough, and eventually you will likely find the end of this kingdom by God's grace, and it will break you. You will discover that you don't have enough energy to keep this thing going. I was reminded of, reviewed Downton Abbey lovers, uh, I was reminded of season three. As this huge aristocratic family starts to run out of money, right? He makes, he makes some bad investments on... Cora, is that her name, on her money, and uh, their money starts to run out, and then what happens is the story takes a, a sharp turn at that point, and the story, I mean, obviously there's lots more going on in the story, but, but they take the story, starts going towards this point of we cannot persevere the way things are, the way things we have done, the kind of kingdom that we're trying to build and how we're trying to build it, we're going to have to change things, because that's not going to work forever. That's kind of the, the big one, I think, anyways, I, I'm not a Downton Abbey expert, so don't shoot me for this. But that seems to be one of the, the big overarching stories that's taking place. They realize that things have to change. Then you start seeing a difference in how they're going to conduct business. And you see them starting to, yeah, anyways, you get the point if you've seen it. If you haven't, if I haven't missed too much. The reality is, the reality is this, this is what I'm getting at, is that That kind of kingdom building will not last forever. Our kind of kingdom building cannot last forever. Only God's kingdom building can last forever. The reality is is you will not sacrifice for long. You will not sacrifice very much. And ultimately you will burn out if you continue living for yourself. You will not persevere. Nehemiah would not have persevered if he was living to build his own kingdom. So with all that said, let's read chapter 4. We'll read this rather quickly. And then we'll go back and reread it as we work through the passage. All right. So now, when Sambalat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged. And he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah the um, Ammonite was beside him, and he said, Yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Hear, O God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders." So we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that, that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. 
At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to, to us ten times, You must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall and open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I, looked and, arose, said to the, I, and I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the wall, the whole house of Judah, who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built the man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread and we are separated on the wall, far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet rally to us there, our God will fight for us. So we labored at the work and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servant pass tonight with within Jerusalem, that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I, nor my brothers, nor my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. Here's my proposition for today, my hope for today for you, is that you can, that you can, preserve, you can persevere if you learn to joyfully live for something bigger than yourself. If we can learn to live for something bigger than ourselves, then we will persevere. That's at least a part of the ingredient of persevering. We learn to live for something bigger than ourselves. Like what Dr. Hamilton or Dr. James Hamilton said concerning this passage, he says, the truth, goodness, and beauty of God on display in the gospel is worth more than our petty causes, more than our personal luxuries and advantages, and more than our very lives. The truth, goodness, and beauty of God on display in the gospel. It's worth more than anything. That is living for something bigger than ourselves. That God's goodness and truth and beauty would be on display in the gospel. All right, so here's kind of the plan for today. There are kind of two parts. The first one's going to be very, very brief. The second one, not so much. First one is dealing with opposition from outside or from without, if you like older English. We'll talk about opposition from the outside, and then we're going to talk about opposition from the inside. I think we tend to think opposition from the outside is the bigger threat, is the bigger deal. Is I, I think that the opposition from the inside, particularly inside here, is probably the bigger threat, at least in our day. But first of all, dealing with opposition from the outside, I'm just going to make this pretty brief. Notice how opposition works in this passage. Notice how opposition works Typically, the typical M.O. of Satan is to cast doubt on the truth of God, on the truthfulness, the, trustful, the trustworthiness of God. That is that's Satan's typical M.O. God didn't really mean what he said. So think back to the garden. What does he do? What does Satan do? He tempts Eve concerning the truthfulness of God. God didn't really say that. He didn't really mean that. That's what's going on in our day with all these revolutions and stuff that's taking place in our culture is is. Many people who, of course, you have people who don't even believe the Bible. Then you have lots of Christians who say they believe the Bible, but are just simply casting doubt on God didn't really mean it that way, or he meant it that way 2,000 years ago, but he doesn't mean it that way anymore today, you know, blah, 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 blah. It's crazy. But that's what Satan does. God didn't really mean it that way. And then we begin to think, uh, yeah, yeah, he didn't really, no. Same thing happens with Christ in the wilderness, the temptation concerning the truthfulness of God. Just simply a, Satan saying, Christ, no, it would be better this way. And listen to what they're saying. Listen to what they're saying in this passage. What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? They're casting doubt on what God has called the Jewish people to do, God's people to do. The opposition is trying to convince them that the bigger-than-themselves task that they are about is going to fail. Look how insurmountable the task is. 
But first of all, just notice how the opposition works. This is, this is very characteristic of, of uh, Satan's M.O. all throughout Scripture. Very, very common. Very, very common in our lives as well. So notice how the opposition works. We must also acknowledge the opposition. We must not acknowledge, we must see the opposition. We must acknowledge opposition. A couple things in mind here. I think that sometimes we get caught up and just well, if it's kind of like a two-year-old, you know, or like a like a baby, right? If if I can't see it, it's not there. The opposition's there. So we have to acknowledge that it's there. We can't just run from opposition. We can't just isolate and set ourselves. This is not what Nehemiah does. Nehemiah, if anything, runs into the opposition. He doesn't invite opposition. But he doesn't run from opposition either. So Nehemiah is aware of the opposition and he doesn't ignore it. He goes after it. And he goes after it in a very specific way. And that's kind of the point of what we're talking about today. But Nehemiah is, first of all, aware of the opposition. We cannot overlook that. But you know, as I was thinking about this, it, I got to wondering, do we experience opposition in building God's kingdom? I imagine... I mean, there's been times in my life, certainly, that there's been little to no opposition. And I thought maybe it was because Sambalat and Tobias are okay with the kingdom that I was about building. You know, so I, I wonder. Now, uh, here's what I don't want to do. I don't want to prop it up and say that <clears throat> opposition is assurance that you're building the right kingdom. Nor do I want to say that you're building the right kingdom... Uh, and there's no opposition, so something must be wrong. It's, it's not a one-for-one. One. But certainly, when we're about building our own kingdom, someone would be okay with that, and someone not so much. So I just want us to, just, again, to keep that in mind as, as a kind of a back thought here. Another thing to keep in mind is that we need to make sure that we're understanding opposition correctly. We need to know where opposition, like what is opposition and what's not opposition. Sometimes what we think might be opposition in our life might be simply God opposing us living for ourselves. All right? Let's think about this for just a second. So I just don't want to, yeah, I'll just keep going. Here's my example. If you mismanage your money during the month and are left without enough money to pay the bills at the end of the month, that is an opposition, most likely, to your Christian life it is probably opposition from God for living only for your own kingdom throughout the month. Okay? If you mismanage, then the, the price paid at the end of the month is probably not just opposition. It's, it's probably God opposing. Maybe call it discipline. So as a general thought, I was thinking this this past week, adversity resulting from faithfulness is probably opposition. Adversity resulting from faithlessness is probably due punishment. So it feels like adversity. It's probably God's discipline. Just want us to, again, be thinking about that we're assessing, that we're categorically placing opposition in the, in the right. Yeah, we're categorically placing opposition. We're doing that correctly. And we must live as if we are acknowledging the opposition, too. I want us to think about this. What is ne- Nehemiah is living in a time of great opposition, right? They're in exile. What greater, ag- I mean, that's some great opposition. What does Nehemiah do? That we have evidence clearly that Nehemiah is living as if he's acknowledging this opposition. One who acknowledges that there is opposition searches the scriptures as if there is opposition. So again, I'm thinking about the enemy from without. The one who knows that there's opposition, we must search the Scriptures. And one who acknowledges that there is opposition begs the Lord in prayer as if there is opposition. And so, you know, I, I like in, um, in Piper's book, Desiring God, he talks all the time about like having a wartime mentality. Um, do we have a wartime mentality? Do we have this mentality that we're, that there is an opposing foe? That there is someone against the task? 
And I think sometimes we don't sense that there's someone against the task because maybe the task we're doing isn't the task we should be doing. So instead of opposing that, the, the adversary helps us in that. So acknowledging, if we have a wartime mentality, then we're going to search the Scriptures as if we have as if we're at war. We're going to pray as if we're at war. And the last thought here on thinking about dealing with opposition from the outside is that we must respond appropriately to the opposition. I'm not going to take the time to do this right now, but if you want to look later, look at verses 4, 14, and verse 20. 4, 14, and 20. Nehemiah reminds them concerning the truth of God. So they're fighting. I mean, well, not fighting, but they're building, and there's potentially going to be a fight. And what does he do? He continues to remind them of the Lord, remind them of the Lord, remind them of the Lord. And I think what Nehemiah is doing is he's reminding them that they're a part of something bigger than themselves. Remember our Lord. We're a part of Him. We're doing His task. We're doing His work. We're a part of something bigger. If Nehemiah would have been in the garden with Eve, I think he would have said, no, we live for something bigger than ourselves. Remember our Lord. I think even more dangerous than the opposition, though, from without is probably the opposition from within. Nehemiah 4.10, if you look at verse 10 with me, he says, In Judah it was said, The strength of those who bear the burden is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves we will not be able to rebuild the wall. Where's the perseverance at? Are we going to make it? Look at verse 12, two verses later. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us, not one, not two, but ten times, you must return to us. You must come back. This isn't going to succeed. This isn't going to happen. There's too much rubble. Ourselves, we cannot do this. These Jews that we're talking about in this verse were not going to persevere. And of course, they were going to drag others down with them. So this leads us to our question of the day. How do we persevere in Reformation? We talked about needing deep convictions. I'm convinced that's that's huge key. I mean, uh, if very foundation. We need deep convictions. We need heartbreak. We need a sense to do something about it. And as we proceed, how do we persevere? And I think we must live for something bigger than ourselves. And I think in this passage we learn at least three ways in which we can learn, for, we can learn to live for something bigger than ourselves. The first one is this. Live for something bigger than yourself by seeking the good of others. Seeking the good of others. Let's read verses 1 through 5 again. Now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he, said, and he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, yes, what they are building. If a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. And Nehemiah says, he prays, Hear, O God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builder. All right, so let's talk about this for a few minutes. We're probably going to linger on this first one the longest, just for the record. Man's problem, kind of at a core level here. We are constantly in the battle of seeking good of ourselves versus seeking the good of others. This is a constant battle we all face every single day. This is the battle of man for all time. We constantly desire the good of ourselves. At the very core of our being is the struggle to seek my good and forsake the seeking of, say, God's good or the good of those around us. When do we do this? One of the ways we do this, we do this when we forsake His mission in our lives. We do this when we question the plan that He has for us. We do this when we try to earn favor with God. 
God's plan, however, has always been seeking the good of others. Has always been, I mean, ultimately, clearly for His glory and all that, but think about the Abrahamic covenant. What was that for? His promise would be to, was to be a blessing, that Abraham's offspring, that he, the covenant would be a blessing to the world, to all people. That this would be for the good of the world, not even just the people, but creation itself. But notice here in this passage that Sanballat and Tobiah are not concerned with anyone else but themselves. Matter of fact, in the previous passage last week, it talks about how they were angry that someone had concern for someone other than themselves. Had concern for the Israelites. That Nehemiah was concerned. He was bringing a party. He was concerned about these people. And Sanballat and Tobiah were angry about that. They were only concerned with their own thrones and their own kingdoms. But when we seek the good of others, we are living out the gospel truth of our hearts. What do you mean by that? What do I mean by that? If everything you do is always for your good and disregards the good of others, just think about how small of thinking I think that is. There is more to life than our throne that we reign from. When we seek the good of others, we are believing and living the truth that God has given us a heart that can seek the good of our neighbor. So here's the deal. Our hearts are prone towards living for ourselves. When we begin to live for the good of others, that's a display of the heart that's been changed. That's a display of a redeemed heart, a reformed heart that's truly living for the good of others. Now I'm going to nuance that in just a few minutes but but leave it that right there for right now that it displays the redemption of a heart and that's what we see with nehemiah nehemiah is exercising faith in his god our god and then because of this is caring for the needs of other people even at the expense potentially of his own life so when we do this, we're beginning to live for something bigger than ourselves. We're living out the gospel truth. We're living out the kingdom. So let me think of a couple different places here. Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, you consider yourself a follower of Jesus, do you seek the good of others, say, in your rhythm of communication? So the way you speak, do you, do you, are you thinking, are you caring for the good of other people? Are you, are you thinking through those things? Do you seek the good of others as you lead or don't lead them to Jesus? Are you caring for the good of others as you do those things? God has given you the body of Christ for you to be strengthened in this manner. To help us live for the good of others. The body of Christ is a great place to, to learn that and to practice that and to be reminded of that. Now, if you're not sure if you're a follower of Christ or think that might be a good idea, or just thinking through that, let me ask you this question. Do you look at your seeking the good of others as maybe something that will help you be on God's good side? So if I do good to others, will that earn me some place with God? Will that earn me some standing with God? Maybe He'll let you into heaven someday. If you think about it, if you just think about that concept for just a second, whose good are you ultimately seeking? As you seek the good of others in order to earn favor with God, for who are you doing the seeking the good for? Yourself, right? Because it's so that I can get into heaven. So I'm doing the good for this person so that it would benefit me. So I'm not really doing it for that person. I'm not really seeking the good for that person. I'm ultimately seeking the good for myself. But I want to encourage you that Jesus laid down his life for you, and laid down his life for me. He sought your good when he lived a perfect life and paid the punishment for your sin on the cross. You see, Jesus didn't have to go to the cross for any of his sin. He went to the cross for your sin and my sin. Now, because of his work on the cross, we can repent of our sins, asking for forgiveness, and then seek the good or even, I'm sorry, let me, let me back up. We can repent of our sins, place our faith in Christ, and place our faith particularly in His payment for those sins. 
then you'll be set free to truly seek the good of others. You see, because then at that point, I don't have to do this good in order to earn favor with God because I can't earn any favor with God. I, I have favor with God because of Jesus' work. So then I'm free to, to seek the good of other people, not for my own benefit, but, but truly for their benefit and truly for their good. All right, so let's back up from this for a second. So if, if I'm a follower of Christ, if, if I'm trying to live for something bigger than myself by seeking the good of other people, I'm going to have to understand my, my relationship with God. I'm going to have to understand my standing with God, that, that I'm not doing this to earn favor with God, to get myself into heaven. I'm doing this because of the work of God in my life. So, I think Nehemiah persevered because he was living for something bigger than himself, the care for others. He was even lay, willing to lay down his life here. Again, who, who was someone else who was willing to lay down his life for others? Right, Jesus, right? Amen. Second, we live for something bigger than yourself by submitting to God and Christ. Submitting to God and Christ. Very similar to the point before where we seek the good of ourselves instead of of others. So also, we seek to submit only to ourselves and to no one else. I mean, this is, again, very common. This is, this is a struggle that we all have. We often live for ourselves. We often submit to ourselves and only to ourselves. Let's read 6 through 14. So in the midst of, of the jeering, in the midst of of the opposition, what happens? Verse 6, he says this, So we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites, I wonder if he's referring, like, if he means to say all of those to point us towards the nations, like the world. Uh, There's a lot of different people. Anyway, it's just a thought. He says, when they heard that the repairing of the walls was, of Jerusalem was going forward, that the work was continuing, and the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. What's he do? What's he say? And we prayed to our God and set a guard as protection against them day and night. We prayed and did something. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall and open places, I stationed the people by the clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. So here's the situation, right? Just help us paint this picture here. The people are trying to build the wall. God has called His people to establish themselves once again among the nations. So they're going to build the city, build this wall, and establish themselves as a visible representation of God among the nations. The nations then, in turn, are mocking what they think is a hopeless endeavor. So they're going to oppose this. They're not just going to mock it, but they're actually going to come against it. Then Nehemiah, instead of responding to Senbel and Tobiah, Nehemiah talks to God. This, of course, makes the opposition very unhappy. So Nehemiah talks to God and the work continues. Nehemiah talks to God and the work continues. You see that time and time again thus far. Again, continuing to make the opposition unhappy. The questions whether or not they are going to remain submissive to God's plan, or the question is whether or not they will remain submissive to God's plan, or whether or not they're going to retreat to their own plans. So 
So we see there's opposition. I don't know if we can build this thing. I don't know if we can do this. So we're going to remain submissive to what God's called us to do, or we're going to retreat to what we think we should do. Now, assessment is a funny business. Because oftentimes we can assess things wrongly. We can assess things in a way that is convenient for the building of our own kingdom. So I don't want to really do this over here anymore because I don't think we can do it. And so I'm going to go build this over here that I think I can go build. What's going to happen though, you go build what God doesn't want you to go build and you're going to run out for sure over here. And God's the one with all the supplies. But the question is, then, are we, so how do we have the right assessment? I think it's where God gives us the Word, gives us the Spirit, and gives us the church to help us make the right assessment. That's just a side note here. But what we have to do is understand, are we going to retreat and submit to our plan, to our assessment of the situation, or are we going to remain submissive and, and under God's plan and God's direction and His plan for the situation? And what we see here, thank God, is ultimately the people trusted God. They trusted God and His goodness, and they submitted to Him. They trusted Him. He says in verse 6, And so we built the wall, and the wall was joined together to half its side, for the people had a mind to work. Then notice in verse 14, again, the people worked, even with their swords in their hands. Now talk about an assessment of the situation. Like, this is very volatile. We can lose our lives, but God's called us to build the wall, and we're going to build the wall even if I have to have my sword in my hand. I'm carrying a rock to build a wall here, and i got a sword to protect my life here. It reminds me of what Russ pointed out a few weeks ago, is that we shop for reformation opportunities like we shop for anything else. We try to extreme coupon it, looking for the best deal we can get, the one that's going to cost us the least amount. They weren't looking for the opportunity that was going to cost them the least amount. They had a rock in one hand and a sword in the other. When we submit to ourselves, though, here's the, here's the danger, okay? Whatever we submit to, we are, we are making it the reigning power in our lives, okay? This, this is really what this comes down to. Am I going to submit to God or am I going to submit it to something else? And, use, and really that something else is just us. I'm either going to submit to God or I'm going to submit to myself. Now, here's the danger. When we submit to ourselves, who, what are we doing? We're making ourselves the king, We're making ourselves the sovereign, the reigning power. So when we submit to ourselves as king, we are setting ourselves up as enemies to God. Now that's a dangerous place to be. So I'm going to submit to my plans versus submitting to God's plans. So we got sovereign God and then who we think is sovereign Matt or sovereign Russ or whatever. Well, what happens? What do you see here? You see sovereign God, and then you see these thinking that they're sovereign Tobias, sovereign Sanbat, and they're coming up against God. They've placed themselves against God. And I think those Jews who wanted to turn back and give up and go hide would be essentially doing the same thing. When you trust in yourself instead of trusting in God, you're setting yourself up as a God and as a sovereign over your situation. Then it's a battle of who's going to win the throne. And that's, that's a battle you and I are not going to win. You know, if you look at this passage, it talked about bringing in confusion. There's already confusion in the camp, too. Can we do it? Can we not do it? Confusion comes when we don't trust God. Confusion comes when we begin to trust ourselves, when we begin to trust everything else. The people who continued to work were strengthened as they did what? As Nehemiah did what? He reminded them of God. Now, he's not just saying, hey, remember the three-letter word God and you'll be okay. No, I mean, what, what, when he says remember the Lord, what is, what is he stirring up in the Jews? I mean, He's he's stirring up in the Jewish people all of the history of what this God had done, what He had promised to do. 
the stories, the Passover, the Exodus, Noah, the Abrahamic covenant, Moses in the wilderness, leading the people to the promised land. All of those things would have been stirred up. When he says, remember the Lord, he wouldn't have been just going, okay, remember your little religious, your little religious thing that you're about. No, he's saying, remember your history with this God. Remember the greatness and what he has done. How are we to trust God if we don't know our God's ways? How do we trust God if we don't know what He says? You know the Word, right? So if you consider yourself a follower of Christ, I think the way we proceed, like the way we, the way we get on to the next thing is that we submit ourselves to God and move on. We submit ourselves to God and move on to the next thing. We do it by faith. Maybe even without understanding. But who do we understand? We may, not have, we may not understand the situation, but in a finite way, we can still understand the God who's directing the situation. Right? Yeah. We may not know why the next step. We may be fearful in the next step, but we don't have to be fearful of God. And we can know God. We may not know what tomorrow is, but we can know the God of yesterday and today and who He says He will be tomorrow. That's who we can know. We can know that for sure. And I think that's what's going on in Nehemiah, is that he knows the God of yesterday. He's reminding the people that this is the God of yesterday. And if He's the God of yesterday and He doesn't change, He'll be the same God today and the same God tomorrow. So let's keep building the wall. Let's keep about the task that God's given us to do. But confusion comes when we begin to doubt the goodness and the trustworthiness of God. God didn't really say what he meant. He meant something different. No, no, no. God said what he meant. He means what he says. We can trust him. So as you contemplate the greatness of God, do the next thing. As you contemplate the greatness of God, you submit to him, do the next thing. In the Reformation, you persevere on to the next thing. Look at verse 14. It says, do not be afraid of them. What? Remember the Lord. What's he say? Who is great and awesome. Who is great and awesome. What kind of images would that have stirred up in the Israelites at this moment again? The parting of the Red Sea. Mount Sinai, right? And the smoke descended on the mountain. The, the stone tablets, the, the Ark of the Covenant, the beauty of the Ark of the Covenant, the tabernacle. I mean, all these things are God who's great and awesome. All those things were meant to make God look great and awesome, display His great and awesomeness and many more things. But He says, he says this, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Remember God and get on to the next thing. Remember God and get on to the next thing. How do we persevere, remember God, and we get on to the next thing? Third thing, live for something bigger than yourself by pointing people beyond yourself to Christ. With 15 through 23, real quick. It says, when our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all turned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building the wall, building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that they each labored with the work in one hand and held his weapon in the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, The work is great and widely spread, and we are separated on the wall, far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. I think is a key thought here as we think of as the way we fight, do we fight in such a way that it points people beyond ourselves to Christ. So verse 21, he says, So we labored at the work, and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I, nor my brothers, nor my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes, each kept his weapon at his right hand. Just very briefly here on this point. Notice that God's people are at work as God's at work. 
God's people building God's kingdom points to something greater than themselves. The very act that we are about something bigger than ourselves points to Christ, points to something beyond ourselves. So I just want you to see that there is a, there's a both and. There is a God at work and then there is a people at work. But if the people are doing work that points to themselves, they're not doing God's work. When the people are doing work, that's God's work, it points to something beyond themselves. It's living for something beyond yourself. Think even about Nehemiah in this passage. He's next to the trumpet, the, uh, the dude with the trumpet. And if battle comes upon them, what's he going to do? I'm going to go run and hide. You all fight the battle. Come back to the guy with the trumpet. He's going to sound it. You all get, no. What Nehemiah is doing, Nehemiah is saying, I'm going to be right in the middle of the battle. The trumpet sound. Where's the trumpet dude at? He's next to Nehemiah. Nehemiah wasn't going to go back or run and hide. He was going to fight. But then he reminds us what? Verse 20, but alas, our God will fight for us. Again, a common theme in Israelite history. Our God will fight for us. Our God will fight for us. Our God will fight for us. So they continue to work with swords in hand, all the while thinking what? Our God will fight for us. They were engaged in a battle that necessitated their God fighting for them. And I think pointing to something beyond themselves. So I think living for something bigger than yourself will require an understanding that God will fight for us. How do you persevere through this insurmountable task, this impossible task, this thing that you're trying to fight through, whether it's marriage or parenting or you know, whatever the situation is, you're trying to bring about reformation, you're trying to ma- help things become the way God intends for them to be, you're trying to be used of God to bring about reformation. How do you do that? You know and you understand that God will fight for you. And as you understand God will fight for you and you continue pressing through the past, you are pointing, you can point, you can in that situation point people to the Christ that's beyond yourself. You know, as I think about this, our God will fight for us. That God goes before us and that the victory is ultimately His. If God is the one fighting for us and the victory is ultimately His, we don't get the glory for it. He does. He gets the credit, not me, not us. Now, we as Christians, here's what's wonderful. As we think back on Nehemiah, right? We get to think back on Nehemiah from a New Testament perspective. Thinking through it through the lens of Jesus Christ. And we do that, we look at this and we go, you know what? The battle that they were engaged in has already been won. It's already been won. The battle's already been won. And when we build God's kingdom now, we give testimony to two things. When we are about God's kingdom now, testimony to two things. One is that the past work of Jesus Christ on the cross, because the work we are doing has been secured by Him, His reformation enables our reforming. Let me say that again. The past work of Jesus Christ on the cross, so as we look back, We give testimony to that, right? We give testimony to the fact that Jesus did work on the cross because the work we're doing is secured by Him. That His reformation on the cross enables our reforming today. The second thing when we work, when when we build God's kingdom, is that it gives testimony to the future work of Christ as the reigning king and reformer on this earth. Because our reforming is in the power of the cross marching toward his finishing of this reformation. So let me say this a couple of times. I know it might be a little confusing, and I'm maybe making it confusing for you. But when we build God's kingdom, we give testimony to two things. The past work of Christ, past work of Christ on the cross, the future work of Christ on the cross. The past work of Christ on the cross, because the work we're doing was secured by him 2,000 years ago. That his reformation work is the reforming work that's going on in our hearts right now. So as we are about reforming, it gives testimony to his work back then. And then as we are seeking reformation now, it's building towards the finished work of Christ 
as the reigning king and reformer of this earth. So it gives testimony to both those things as we are about the kingdom, about what he did 2,000 years ago and about what he will finish someday in the near future. All right. I have some closing thoughts here. Ultimately, we step up here from the back up to the bigger picture. Ultimately, we will persevere as we remember the Lord and live for something bigger than ourselves. I think this is part of, uh, certainly I don't want to leave out grace. I mean, grace is all throughout all this. I'm going to leave out those things. But we'll persevere as we remember the Lord and live for something bigger than ourselves. Now, as we think about this, I want to encourage us, church, with some graces to us from God. And that is this, if, we, if we're going to live for something bigger than ourselves, how do we get about doing that? So if we want to persevere, how do we get about living for something bigger than ourselves? Of course, I've given you three ideas, but then very practically, day in and day out, I think God has given you a very big means of grace to help you live for something bigger than yourselves. I think that is the church. He has given you the church to submit your life to in order to teach you what it means to be a part of something bigger than yourself and to remind you regularly what it means to be a part of something bigger than yourself. You know, church, as, as a pastor, I'm regularly faced with opportunities of whether it's counseling situations or just difficulties, and I'm and in my sinfulness, I begin to think that the situation is just about me. And you know, when that happens, like the perseverance to make it through, it's just not there. And when God in His graciousness reminds me that this is a part of a bigger picture, this is a part of a bigger story, that this situation is a part of a bigger plan, that I'm to be living for something bigger than myself. It's, am it's amazing the, the resources and the encouragement that comes to persevere through that. So as we think about the church as God's means of grace to help us live for something bigger than ourselves, when you lead your kids, and I have a few examples, when you lead your kids to sacrifice for the rest of the church, you're teaching them to live for something bigger than themselves. We live in a world that we, that our kids become the central focal point of our lives. Like they become the, the reigning gods, if you will, which is really just us because we're just trying to please them to make ourselves feel good. So really it's just us that we're worshiping, not our kids ultimately. But we teach and we lead them to sacrifice. And one of the ways we can do that is through the church, teaching them to live for something bigger than themselves. Another example, when you lead your finances and your family to care for others, to care for the church, care for your pastors, you're teaching your family that we live for something bigger than just our little family. We live for something much bigger than this house. A practical example, another one, when you cook food for Tuesday nights and Wednesday nights for your house gathering, be reminded that you are cooking, that you are living you're buying food for something bigger than yourself. You're a part of something bigger than yourself. You know, when you're here early on Sunday mornings, those of you who are part of Roadie Crew and you're building our big black walls, right? Be reminded that you're living for something bigger than yourself. You know, when I, when I have to discipline one of my kids... I'm reminded that I live, I'm living for something bigger than myself. That the leading of my kid to righteousness is just a part of building God's kingdom. God's vision for my child is not that he would live this way. My, God's vision for my child is that he would live in such a way that brings glory to God. And that bringing glory to God is a part of something bigger than myself. I can get over my my desire not to spank because, because it's a part of something bigger than myself. I don't want to do that. So 
the question is, are you leading your family and those around you, whether you have a family with kids or, or you're on your own at this point or whatever it looks like or no kids, are you leading your family, are you leading those around you, those at work, those in your neighborhood, are you leading them around you to, lead, to live for something bigger than yourselves? And I think the church and its mission is, the pri- is a primary means of grace in helping you persevere. One of the ways it helps you persevere is by helping you live for something bigger and reminding you weekly and even daily, hopefully, that this is the way it should be. The reality is you will not persevere long if you continue living for your small drama. You will not persevere. We weren't meant to persevere that way. But, but here's the deal. This is exactly how God intends for us to understand this, though. Think about this with me. Think about in the garden. Adam and Eve wanted to live for themselves. They thought they could live forever, even if they disobeyed God. I mean, that's the, the crux, right? They, right? So God says, if you eat of this fruit, you'll surely die. So what do they say? Well, we're going to eat of this fruit, but we won't die. We can live eternally on our own, apart from God, underneath our reign and our rule. They thought they could persevere without God, ultimately. They thought they could live eternally without God. They could live for themselves instead of living for something bigger, namely God. They thought they could do this. Just a very quick, brief historical overview. Then Noah shows up. He shows up and shows us what it means to live for something bigger than ourselves. I mean, think about building an ark. Think about building an ark. He's living for something bigger than himself. (laughs) Then Moses, I'm sorry, then Abraham. Don't skip Abraham. That'd be bad. He shows us what it means to live for something bigger than ourselves. The promise that he would be a blessing to the whole world. Right? I, I'm not going to give him justice. But then on to Moses. Then Moses comes. Go deliver my people, God says. Talk about something bigger. But then comes the law. And God uses Moses to really lay some roads in making a people for himself. You think Moses could have persevered through all the mess that the people were making in Exodus if he were living for himself? Uh-uh. We should go back to Egypt. We were better off there, Moses. I don't know. Go back. I'm going with God. Get out of here, you know. Moses persevered. He was living for something bigger than me. You think, you think Moses would have seen much reformation if he was living for himself? I don't, I don't think he would have. Then look at Nehemiah. I know we skipped a bunch of history there, but look at Nehemiah. Leading the people to the rhythm of repentance and faith. He knew he was a part of something bigger than himself. Leading these people. All right, now skip by four or five hundred years. Think about Christ. Christ models perfectly what it means to live for something bigger than himself. How does Jesus persevere? Because he was living for something bigger than himself. He was living for the glory of his Father's name displayed in the reformation of a world and a people. Jesus was living for that picture. Think about this. John 18, verse 33 through 38. Jesus, this is right before the crucifixion. Jesus is with Pilate. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say this to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, listen to this. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? What's Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, I live for something bigger than just being the king of the Jews. I live for something bigger than the crucifixion that's about to happen to my body. I live for something bigger than the wrath that's about to be poured out on my life, on my body, on my being. I live for something bigger. What do I live for? I live to bear witness 
to the truth. What do I die for? I die to bear witness to the truth. What will I rise again for? To bear witness to the truth. The truth about what? The truth that God is who He says He is. The truth that God is the reformer of this world. The truth that God is the one who is transcendent above us. The truth that God loves His people and died for His people. This is the truth that I live for. This is bigger than anything that you can imagine. I live for this. I die for this. I will rise again for this. I will ascend to heaven for this. So the question for us today is this. How will you persevere to the end? How will you persevere in reformation and reforming and seeking God's vision for all of life? I think we have to ask these questions. Will we stop living for ourselves? Will we stop living just for our little family? I want my kids to grow up like... We, have, we live for something bigger, something bigger than just a house, something bigger than just our cute family, something bigger than sports, something bigger than having even food on the table. We live for something bigger than these things. Will you start living for something bigger than all of that? Will you lead those around you to live for something bigger than that? Will you live for the glory of your Father displayed in the reformation of a world and a people? Will you live for that? That's the question. Jesus lived, died, rose again, and ascended so that His Father's glory would be on display in people being rescued from darkness to light. Let's pray. Father, Thank you that you rescued us from the building of our own kingdom. But Father, each day, each and every day, we are faced with the temptation to build our own kingdom. And Father, for that, there will be no perseverance. We just study the book of Ecclesiastes and see him persevering and building his own kingdom. And then ultimately he fails and he realizes that it's all vanity And certainly we are left here, hopefully, to understand that to build anything but your kingdom, Father, is vanity. It's all in vain. It's all pointless and meaningless. But, Father, your kingdom, doing your will, seeking to bring things about the way you desire them to be, is full of meaning full of meaning. And as we do something that's full of meaning, it is also full of joy. We live in a dreary world because everyone is seeking stuff that is meaningless. And then as we try to swim down the same stream as everyone else, we find that things are meaningless and we wonder why we have no joy. Father, your kingdom is meaningful. The only thing that is meaningful. And the only thing that will bring us joy. So Father, I pray that that would be the cry of our hearts, that you would help us build your kingdom. And that, Father, in prayer and in trusting in your gratefulness and your amazing strength and power and grace and mercy that we would do the next thing. Father, Senior. Son's most precious name we pray.